Today on IFS Talks, we are so happy to be welcoming back C. Sykes. C. Sykes has over 40 years of experience of clinical work with individuals, couples, and families specializing in recovery from trauma and addictive processes. She's a senior trainer of internal family system, and she travels internationally teaching, lecturing, and consulting. CIS has also developed a wonderful workshop retreat as part of an ongoing worldwide project to explore the personal narratives of therapists and the impact on their work. Thies, thank you so much for joining us again and being willing to meet with us today. Oh, it is so nice to see you both again and be with you. Thank you for having me. Welcome back, sis. It's your take number four for this podcast. So grateful for this. <laughs> the topic you suggested to discuss today is bridging community and psychotherapy work on addiction. And so we are following up on the topic of your more recent talk in January 2022 that we called How to Stay Present for Addictive Processes. So, Sis, why did you choose this topic, bridging community and psychotherapy work on additions? I think that that's probably the sort of main mission in my mind when I'm thinking about working with addictive processes and IFS, is how IFS can form a bridge for the psychotherapy community about that. Um, I've been working with Martha Sweezy on a, on a book, another IFS skills manual to work with addictive processes. We're working on this. Uh, you know, some of the mission of that I have around it continues to develop and clarify in my mind. And the more I wrote, the more I realized that, you know, we've always told people with substance issues on addiction issues, well, you go through that door of the community center and everyone with emotional problems, <laughs> anxiety and depression, trauma, will you come in through this door? And I, we have, I was trained that way. I was trained that if someone comes in and they're uh, drinking or using, send them home. Uh, if you see a couple and one of them is drinking and using, they need to work on that and then you should work with them. So uh, I think that uh, we can do something different. What are you learning and envisioning about uh, what should be done differently? Well, I think that the idea that someone has a compulsive issue or a, is struggling, suffering with a part of themselves that's really kind of taking over their system, I would like us to think about that, just level the playing field with that as an emotional issue. I think that the people... In IFS, we say that firefighters have positive intentions, along with managers, but all protectors have a positive intention. So someone who's using and has struggled with using practices, food issues, uh, drinking issues, uh, pornography issues, preoccupation, spending, you know, there's a certain level of suffering. Why do we say, you know, go to the clinic, go to 12-step, then come back and get it sorted out, and then come back and have psychotherapy? I People come, I think that we can work with them in psychotherapy. And I think that IFS in particular has a way to work with parts of someone and the systemic nature of addictive processes 
that's actually quite useful. Sis, let me come back to your thinking on these. You say a critical juncture arises when clients do gather up the courage to reveal their struggles to a therapist. This is a big risk, you say, already harshly judging themselves. Clients anticipate that judgment from helpers in authority is inevitable. You also say, ideally, therapists entrusted with this vital window into the client's world appreciate the client's vulnerability and assuredly offer clinical next steps. And you say, far too often, however, this is not the case. What do you mean, sis? I think that what I what therapists often tell me is that they feel overwhelmed, stressed out, out of their depth when they're working with people, particularly if they find out that the person's um, addictive issues are getting stronger or more intense than they use when they when they first met them or than they knew. I think that there's a fear, and I don't think it's pathological to have that fear, but I think there's a fear. What should I do? What can I do? out of control parts. It's just like being afraid of anger. If you have an angry client, right? Some some therapists work with that easier than others. What happens to the therapist when we find out our client has severe preoccupation issues with some issue that's high risk? They could lose their job, they could lose their license, they could use their marriage, they could ultimately lose their life, right? So it's like, well, I'm gonna refer them to an expert on this. And when they're not using, they can come back to me. But I think is that I have, we can step, uh, you know, uh, a treatment center might be a part of their work or an intensive outpatient might be a part of their work. But I'd like to start with helping people understand in a more simple way. And I think the triangle and the three parts that, of, this, of the inner world that we have in IFS helps clients and Uh, therapists understand this issue in a really clear way and we can intervene. It sounds like one of the, one of the primary steps in bridging that gap is for therapists to really understand their own parts that get activated around addiction. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not just therapists. I mean, our culture has enormous shame and ambivalence around helping people um, who have any kind of out of control or addictive issue. We have, it is a criminal matter in the United States and in many Western countries, not in Portugal, Anival. We did that, we decriminalized it. Yeah, you have decriminalized that. That was a huge improvement. And it was an improvement and you actually have less of an issue in your country. Absolutely. It has reduced use of drugs. Alcohol. Wow. So turning things into the war on drugs, which has been going on for 40 years, I think it's Carl Hart writes about this. It's 35, and others do too, $35 billion in the United States spent on tracking down drug criminals. Um, this is an enormous police issue. It's a policing issue. It's actively used to discriminate against black and brown, the BIPOC community in America. I don't know in other countries how that has all worked. 
Um, so there's political issues, policing issues, uh, you know, issues around justice. So what happens if we look at this as a psychological issue, like other psychological issues, that it's <clears throat> that underneath there are exiles for someone who's using and uh, those there's going to be small T or big T trauma for that person. And what if we have the option of helping them with that? Uh, this is how IFS looks at problems. And I don't think, I think we should consider looking at the problems of addictive processes in just the same way as we do with other firefighters or other, you know, protectors. Sis, you also say this directive to go get over your addictive problem somewhere else and then you can come back and have therapy about your addictive problem seems to you incongruous. It is, you say, humiliating for the client and it impairs the potential effectiveness of future clinical intervention from its first moments. You say clinicians would like better options as addictive issues are common clinical issues and the IFS model tailor-made to address them and even offering a new approach to working with substances that emphasizes a compassionate approach. So, sis, what is exactly this new approach? Well, I think just sort of shifting into the idea of rather than being sort of wary and waiting for the person who's using to manipulate us or lie to us or we in any other in every other clinical issue the therapist's role is to be compassionate warm accepting and have and, and knowledgeable have interventions but there is sort of a sense when you're working with someone who's using um that you're gonna that they're gonna manipulate and this is eating disorders too they're gonna manipulate they're gonna lie They're going to try to get out of it. And people do have those parts. But in IFS, we see those are those parts of the positive intention and that there's something behind that, with, which is quite vulnerable, and that they also have managers that are working on them as well. So traditionally, it's been sort of a power struggle where the clinician is the manager and has the answer for the user who's out of control and who has lost themselves and who needs direction. And that's the sort of central dynamic. And I'm inviting us to think about, and in the work that I do, thinking in my own with my own clients about what it'd be like to remember they have a self, that they have a desire to be whole and healthy and be a better parent or not lose their job or have a decent life. They may or may not have a desire for sobriety, what, however that gets defined, but they have a desire for a better life. And <clears throat> that what's tailor-made about IFS is we can begin to look at, rather than me take the manager role and tell them how to control themselves, I say, do you have a part of you that tells you you're <laughs> it's getting a little crazy now? Do you have a part of you that wants this to be different? Do you have a part of you that says, you know, <clears throat> Uh, this has gone too far. So uh, in addition to the party that says, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do this. <laughs> You've got both. And uh, so in IFS, 
we can get ourselves out of the manager role, help our clients check in and find their own managers and rebalance their system. Is quoting you for setting this stage for compassion that you just described. You say people struggle with substances and compulsive practices are commonly labeled by treatment professionals as addicts and are typically informed that their addiction is a permanent condition they can learn to cope with but never be rid of completely. So this discourse can be stigmatizing, diminishing point of view to invoke with someone already struggling with hopelessness. And you say, furthermore, redefining substance use as a part of a process that develops over time, rather than a permanent affliction that never heals, and viewing user behavior as holding important protective roles for the client systems, creates hope and the possibility of action. So can you tell more about this shift, somehow shift that you are suggesting in clinical stance towards this group? Well, I think that, again, IFS helps us listen to the story of our parts. So for many people who come in to hear us, one of the things I like to ask them is sort of like, do you remember the first time you sort of acted out, got in trouble, took a risk? Um, and firefighters are risk-taking parts. Uh, for most people, they for many people, there's a time in their life when they began to uh, remember, you know, 10 years old smoking cigarettes, 11 years old starting to shoplift, 14 years old starting to uh, to drink a lot with their friends, uh, get with boys or get with girls at a certain age. So these aren't bad behaviors, uh, but we would, in IFS, we're noticing that those are either more risk-taking or soothing and escapist, depends on how the part defines itself, activities that our client has had for a long time. So when we get to know those parts and the intention of those parts and how those parts are trying to help a lonely child, a neglected child, a child uh, who felt worthless and who wanted to do something to join the group, a child who felt lonely and wanted to connect to others to, for comfort, a child who was alone in their home and wanted to eat and check out on TV because no one was paying attention, then we can start to really look and bring compassion to the fact that this person has been struggling with very vulnerable issues that and needs that have never been met. So in IFS, we have a really great ways to do that and um, safe ways to help people start to listen to their parts from various ages so that they can begin to have compassion and really see. Many people say, I don't know. I don't know, even know why I'm having this affair. I don't know why I can't be faithful. I don't know why I'm drinking like this. I don't know. So in IFS, you say, okay, you know, I, I get it. Um, and what if we could find out? <laughs> what if we could get some answers for you? <laughs> and some of that looks at, you know, we have safe ways to look at various parts of people's lives and stages in their lives. To, to develop their own answers. I'm noticing that uh, I have um, just some, some really grateful parts coming up. My family has been really profoundly affected by addiction. And mm. I, I'm, I'm just so grateful for the work that you do because you're shifting. Like you are 
shifting and IFS is shifting the way that we approach. I think like, wow, what if my brother had had compassion? Right. You know, in, instead of uh, punitive, because those punitive approaches brought up so much shame and then just continued this cycle for him. Um, right. And he may have, you know, and I don't, you don't have to speak of his story or your story in any detail, but thinking about what was he like when he was 10 and was he struggling with something when he was 10 or 12 mm. or 15? What was going on in his inner world that maybe no one knew about, right? You know, so all of these things that that feed into a need to escape and soothe and medicate. And then if the helping profession on top of it says, you're a little blank and, you know, what, what are the, some of the classic lines? When is an, an addict lying? Whenever their mouth is moving. Although one that I think is sort of funny and can cute in a certain way is an alcoholic is just like everybody else. Only more so. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> I, like, I, don't, I can't find out where that comes from. Um, and that has a little affection in it. Um, but, uh, you know, my heart goes out to you. And when I hear that and the way everyone in the family is impacted when someone's struggling, but they don't look like they're struggling. They look like they're being like they hate everybody, like they don't care about the consequences of themselves. They don't care about the consequences of their family. They don't care if they steal your money. They don't care if they get better. They don't care if they're okay. So this is what we see on the outside. So it's very easy to get pretty managerial and pretty afraid, quite legitimately, because they're engaging in really, really risky behaviors and they could die. And it's really, really scary. So it affects everybody who knows them and loves them. I think it's really easy, you know, certainly was in my brother's case, like just to put things in these very um, uh, convenient boxes, like to say there was something in him that uh, predisposed him to be an addict and there's something wrong. And then that's, you know, that's going to be there forever. Um, And instead of looking deeper, it was just sort of like this neurological switch was off for him. Right. Mary Kruger talks about this too, but I think the idea of a brain disease, that kind of neurochemical, neurobiological reasoning for people who get involved in various kinds of substances or addictive behavior was supposed to sort of combat the idea that it was just willpower and they were bad people, which was a systemic, a societal view of people who are using for a very long time. And so in a sense, it was the intention, you know, we always talk about intention. The intention was to destigmatize and say, well, it's a brain thing, you know, I mean, it's not your fault. It's a brain thing and you have a disease. And Right. And you tried this thing and it was like a match to gasoline. And there it is. It was helpful in a way, but limited. Right. Yeah. But I think we, it's just too complex to apply that particular hammer to every nail. Uh, because One of the downsides of that is, well, if it's in my brain, how am I going to get better? You know, I've definitely worked with people who've gone into treatment. I, I'm just, you know, writing this chapter now with Mary Kruger. You know, in my case, you know, the woman went into treatment and was told she's an addict and that she has an addiction. She's going to have to work with it the rest of her life. It's never going to go away. She has to always stay on guard. And she left treatment feeling so depressed and so hopeless. And I know that wasn't their intention. Their intention was to try to help people be cautious but it's a very fear-based, inter- those are fear-based interventions and they're judgmental interventions. 
And I'm sorry, they only look at one set of parts in that person. There's so much more to that person than that. So, you know, but none of that's discussed. And so she used worse after treatment. And I'm not saying that's always the case, but I think that everyone I've worked with who's gone through repeat therapists and repeat treatment uh, has certainly felt, it's not anyone's intention, but they have felt very judged, very, very shamed uh, by the systems that are trying to help them. They've also met people that they, they cared about them and helped them, you know, and they've also sometimes felt seen and understood. So it's that's not universal either. But the, when that comes up, I think it's problematic. Coming back to your thinking on how firefighters impact on therapists. You say the compelling part of the addictive processes can act as an invitation to caretaking and controlling parts of the therapist to rescue and save the client. You also say in IFS, we say all parts are welcome, but should those firefighters really be allowed to attend the session? In fact, it feels good quoting the basic theory of this approach, but living up to it is another story. So how can therapists be impacted by intense firefighter systems and how can we help our struggling parts? Oh, such a, a, a good, you're underscoring something so important. I think that what I like to say is that firefighter behavior is a gilded invitation to managers. <laughs> so when someone's sitting across the desk from you or across the, in the Zoom room with you or in your family um, and they appear to be out of control, self-harming, and taking massive risks with significant consequences and appear very stuck in that. It naturally, it's like a it's like a centripetal force. It's circling around and it draws us in to want to do something about it. I almost think it's physics to be drawn into the pull of their own cycle, to be drawn into that, uh, like a cyclone, you know. We're drawn in. <clears throat> so to resist that pull takes conscious awareness. I think it's far more likely that we will want to take charge than that we will want to step back and just be in self. So the that being in self towards that is not, in my opinion, the natural response. The natural response is, oh my God, I got to grab that kid by the collar and get set him straight. I got to rope him in. I got to set him straight. I got to get this troll. I got to fix him. I got to help him. I got to make sure she, he, they don't fall over the edge. You know, and those urges uh, on the part of family and those urges are this very, very similar on the part of therapists that I work with. So um, Gabor Mate, I was just reading this. He, uh, Gabor Mate always says things. I always agree with him. I think, oh, you know, <laughs> anyway, he says it so well. But he said, you know, the therapist's mission sometimes is to control the uncontrollable, to fix the unfixable. So, and you know, and that's what I think is happening when we're working with someone who's using. We can't control them, but our parts want to. So first, it's just accepting. I want to change them. I want to control them and making lots of space for all of our managers. I want to fix them. I want to control them. And I'm furious with them. 
So those are that's our polarity. I want to help them. I want I and I I judge them, and yet I'm afraid of them, and you know, and I also want to get away from them. So when we can start accepting our managers, loving them, understanding, and and again, if we have anything in our own families that leads us to be susceptible to fixing unwell people. If we just happen to have any background in that area, which uh, raise your hand if you don't, (laughs) uh, then we are vulnerable to going into a manager-firefighter connection. And the trick about that is, is that if we're in managers, our client doesn't have to find their own managers. They'd much those firefighters of theirs would much prefer to argue with us about how bad they're doing than argue with themselves. So when we get out of that manager role, we give that manager role back to the client. Say, do you have any part of you that's ever said to you, wow, this is maybe a little much? <laughs> you know, we give it back to them and then we they can work on their polarity because you know. What IFS talks about, what I believe that we are doing is working with a system and that it's a systemic, cyclic, repetitive process between managers, firefighters, and exiles. And if we take over the manager role, uh, we're unbalancing their system. So it's a huge U-turn for therapists. Thank you. Perfectly put. Do you like to um, speak for your managers when there's a firefighter around with a client to name them overtly? Oh, sure. I might very well. I might say I have a part that's getting scared. I have a, I have a part that wants to, I have a drug counselor part that wants to set up a contract with you. Let's discuss, you know, <laughs> or whatever. I mean, you know, sign here, right. Would you sign? Here? Yeah. You know, I have, and I definitely will say, you know, I, with, uh, you know, great sincerity and with, and with self, self lead, self leading my managers. I think the stakes are getting a little higher here. I have some parts that are getting scared um, about some of the things you're telling me right now. And I and I know even, and as I just, I want to name that because it's in the room here and I don't want it to control our interaction here. But, and then I say, as I say that to you, how does that land on you? And I want to know, did it land on their exile? Did it land on their firefighter? Did it land on their manager? So we can always keep checking in as to how our impact is with our client. We don't have to not have an impact. We want to self-lead it, <clears throat> and we want to check always what's happening in the relationship. So that that applies to individual work and individual therapists. And you know, you spoke earlier about this being a, really a cultural problem and cultural stigma and the war on drugs since the eighties. Um, how how do you see this kind of trickling out into um, community health centers and um, treatment centers so that like this this um, kind of systemic approach becomes more self-led? Mm. Well, you know, the harm reduction movement has been working for a long time, maybe the last 20 years or so, maybe a little more around trying to first say we want to make people, people will get first want to keep people alive. So doing stuff it started actually, I believe harm reduction started actually with the HIV issues of trying to help people who have been initially given HIV and teaching safe practices for them. 
So safe practices, particularly for people who are at risk with needle use and other kinds of health issues, is one type of way in which what we are learning from that is that when people are treated with respect and compassion and care, and they are treated also with hope, which is, you know, you're out there, but I just want you to know we could get shelter for you. We can get medical care for you. We can help you so that you can detox without a lot of pain. We can offer medication. So they are always offering that possibility. So I'm not, I want to say that some of that is my point being some of that is occurring and, and occurs in those places in Chicago, New York, and other large cities in particular, where they're offering sort of shifting to compassion. Um, but in the larger I look of this, uh, there's also another IFS therapist, Mike Fitzgerald, who's been doing some work on this um, and some research on this. He's at, uh, in, at Oklahoma State, I believe, around therapist bias. So <clears throat> to augment this idea about what parts are coming up for us when we're working with someone who has uh, high risk behavior is to look at what, the word bias sounds judgmental too, but what predisposed ideas or assumptions we have. So if we were able to look at that, there have been a number of studies on healthcare professionals that are in hospitals and in treatment centers who are really struggling with their view of their patients, really seeing them as having lots of judgment around that. And there's an enormous amount of research around that. Um, and as psychotherapists, I think we have to include ourselves as having parts around this too. This will help. You, you know, policy is changed by people. And um, our president, who has a son who is very open about his time using drugs uh, and alcohol, uh, is also changing some of the legislation and is, uh, I believe, doing some funding around harm reduction and trying to reach out. Uh, for treatment for addictive issues. You know, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, has written a book about his own long journey with using. So I think that people change policy. So one of the, I can only work with the people I know, and I think in our IFS community, we can begin to look at what our own points of view are. And I would love to see treatment centers begin to uh, offer uh, support for the professionals who are helping the patients or the clients um, to work with their own systems. So many times, people who are attracted to working with uh, in the addiction field have had an issue in their family. But what has happened to them? What are their exiles? So my vision, if we would be that there's more support uh, and ability for actually practitioners. Uh, and therapists to look at our parts around it and also then secondarily to have interventions they can use. And I think IFS and its systemic work. Well, the last thing I'll say is it just hit me this other day when I was talking with this consultation group that, you know, we say in IFS that trauma creates protectors, right? Exiled, exiles that hold trauma we develop protectors. Now, I 100% agree with that. But I think actually when I get right down to it, I think that trauma creates polarities. It creates polarized protectors, you know, and it starts very early in this early experience, which is I hate you, I love you, I need you, 
I don't need you. I want you. I don't want you. It starts with very, very early experiences around what we have gone through and what that person has gone through. So to me, we are always working with a systemic issue, polarized parts, and exiles underneath that aren't whose needs have, are not met or seen. So when we start to think of this as a polarity issue, not just a firefighter issue, uh, and a polarity that is intensified over time to shield the exile from being felt and seen, uh, I think that offers enormous clarity to the work. That is brilliant insight. I'm really glad you shared that with us so clearly. Thank you. Sis, you are saying that we therapists, we are not always ready to welcome addicted systems or firefighter-led systems. What kind of specific training and adaptations you think we need and it's becoming crucial? We will have soon your manual on treating addictions coming soon, right? Right. Um, Martha Sweezy and I have been working on it for a while. It's a labor of love, <laughs> meaning it takes a lot. Uh, but it's uh, it's a, it's at the publisher now. It's being published by PESI. So it's similar to um, the skills manual that Frank Anderson did with Martha Sweezy and Dick um, and that Tony Herbine Blank did with Martha Sweezy. And um, Dick also is involved in this. He's writing a, a, a forward for us and supports the work. Um, he and I have been able to, to talk a, a more about these issues too, which has been, I think, wonderful because he's such a, a leader in the field, and I want his leadership and uh, his stance around IFS and its ability to help addictive births, I think will send a really strong message too. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy he's on board with that. So, um, and I hope that the manual will give some uh, support to clinicians. Uh, you know, it has experiential exercises, how to draw triangles, how to work with polarities, um, how to how to work with therapist parts. Um, so I'm hoping that it's useful. Beautiful. Sis again, congratulations for the coming manual on addictions and thank you so much for sitting with us and for such a valuable conversation on addictive processes. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha. And we hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. And thank you, Tisha, also just for just venturing in a little bit to how this issue lands on you. I think that that level of um, honesty and authenticity for us, I've said this in previous podcasts, it's certainly been a personal issue for me mm. um, in my <laughs> family life. So I think that that also opens the door. Yeah. for us to just have the freedom uh, to talk honestly and without shame about the journey in our, ourselves as clinicians. Many clinicians have been on their own journey with substances and practices and with our families. You know, and there's so we have so much in our heart around this. So thanks for being so opening your heart a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it just it felt like it was up and um, and I'm aware that it's it's still hard to talk about um even with work that i've done around it and um you know it feels it feels vulnerable there's parts of me that feel that it's taboo 
and also you know not not wanting to take up the space in in this venue but but it it does hit home for me and it hits home for a lot of people there's so many people whose lives are touched by addiction and i do think about the ways my brother's life would have been differently if he was met with you know the idea that um that this is one of a complex many parts that we could meet um with a lot of with a lot of love and understanding and um it was just so clear that shame cycle for him um yeah and some people are more i don't want to say that some people aren't more biochemically vulnerable than others why is a whole separate issue yeah but it's just too simple if somebody wants to be checked out all day every day has something emotional going on not just a brain glitch yeah so anyway thank you for that thank you